This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. What is it that they do up there in those glass rooms that hover over the airport tarmacs? Pilots on the plane say we're going to see if the air traffic control can find us some smooth air. So they must look for smooth air up there, but we all depend on them to do so much more than that. We hope they keep the flurry of movement, the coming and the going of all the planes in sync. In 1981, America became fixated on the air traffic controllers who peered out of those tinted windows. Their faces illuminated by the green glow of World War II-style radar screens, searching, searching for dots in the sky, sometimes 50 of them when things were busy. Their shirts yellowed from cigarette smoke and their nerves frayed from the deadly daily minutia of directing zooming cans of tin through fog and snow and thunderstorms. It was a severe and necessary duty, and when the controllers asked for more money and attention to the conditions that sparked their high blood pressure, they were rebuked. Nearly 12,000 of them were brought down from their towers and put on the unemployment line by a president who had come to Washington to set a new tone. It was the first big crisis of the Reagan presidency, and the swift and ruthless response to the striking controllers sent a signal about how serious the small government conservative was when he talked about changing things in Washington, D.C. This morning at 7 a.m., the union representing those who man America's air traffic control facilities called a strike. August 3rd, 1981, 12,000 air traffic controllers, three-quarters of the workforce of the Federal Aviation Administration, walked off their jobs. The men and women who normally directed aircraft on and off the runways for more than 400 airports were sticking to their demands for higher pay and measures to reduce the stress in the job. The largest air traffic system in the world faced a crisis, and a young president faced one, too. The president himself wasn't young, of course. It was Ronald Reagan, but his presidency was young. The strikers had defied laws that made it illegal for federal workers to strike. 700,000 travelers were angry. They weren't going to make it home to Grandma, and that crucial deal they hoped to close in Green Bay was going to have to be put off. Ronald Reagan's response to the strike has taken on mythic proportions. When Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker ran for president, he said the move was Reagan's most significant foreign policy achievement because it showed the world... And most important, it showed the Russians that he meant business. Now, this was, of course, an attempt by Walker to explain away his lack of foreign policy experience. His argument was all you need is leadership, not book learning. That's what the Reagan story told. Whatever the lesson of the Reagan story was, and we'll get to that in a minute, it does show you the sense in which this has gained a kind of talismanic power in Republican circles. But it's not just Republican boosters who credit this move with all of this deep significance. Here's Joseph A. McCartan, an associate professor of history at Georgetown University, who wrote a book called Collision Course, Ronald Reagan, the Air Traffic Controllers, and the Strike that Changed America. You can tell from the title alone that he's stuffing that Thanksgiving turkey with lots of significance. But here's what he writes. Ronald Reagan not only transformed his presidency with this move, but also shaped the world of the modern workplace. 
Well, that's a big claim. The Air Traffic Control Union in the 1980s was called PATCO, Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization. Now, they'd supported Reagan in the 1980 election, and after he was in office, they asked for a better deal for themselves. They were responding to the inflation of the 70s and early 80s, so they wanted more wages. They were also responding to what they said were the unique conditions of their jobs. They were using old, outdated machinery, and the the stress level, which is to say if you make a mistake, a plane goes jackknifing into the ground— created unique conditions for them. But there was something else about their condition that was unique, which is that they were a federal union and not a private union in a private corporation. And so they had a different set of rules. So when they asked for higher wages and better conditions, they had to bargain with Uncle Sam. Here's what I didn't really understand that I found fascinating in reading through the Cracker Jack research compiled by our one and only Brian Rosenwald. The ethos of the air traffic controller was really something quite particular. And I'm taking this from a book by uh, Arthur Shostak and David uh, Skokik uh, called The Air Air Controller's Controversy, Lessons from the Petco Strike. And this really lays out, it's quite sympathetic, of course, to the, the air traffic controllers, and it really lays out the world of the air traffic controller and why they were pressing their case, both in the first place and then, as you'll see, through this long and winding negotiations. This wasn't just a traditional labor dispute. This was a particular kind of labor union. So what was the job like? Well, here in the Shostak and Skokik book is uh, what they write. They talk about a 30-year-old Texan who worked in the tower chief's position from 1971 through 1981. That would be through August 3rd, 1981. And he remembered the tension in this way. You could never admit you had any limitations. If you did and they got reported, you were in bad trouble. What's much worse were the errors you didn't know about because when you learned about them, you got a negative adrenaline surge. You had to feel that you were the best in the tower. Old timers used to reminisce about Berlin in 1948 when the airlift meant bad winds and avoiding Russian airspace. That was the real test of a controller and it left several of them burned out, but proud, real proud. You got scared even when you had parachutes in the whole nine yards. If you want to know the truth, we were always running scared. You had to believe in the inevitability of a mistake. Otherwise, you got too gung-ho. And after an incident, you were never any good afterwards. You worked traffic, you stayed cool, and you puked your guts out in the bathroom afterwards. So over and over, these interviews with old air traffic controllers explain what the job was like. The job could be a killer, but oh, what a grand way to go. The PADCO controllers used to boast that they were, quote, a breed apart, professionals distinct from all others in the government's employment. When the wife of a striker tried to explain the distinctiveness of an air traffic controller to whom she was married, she described it this way. You say you want to know what they were like before they got murdered? Of course, murdered, she's referring to the strike. Well, I'll tell you, they were like gods. They were like Marlboro Cowboys. They were like giants. They were like nobody else. They were like real men, macho, crazy, eager, proud, dedicated. They loved the job. The same crazy job that was killing them much of the time. The same job that drove them up a wall, but that also made life exciting and dangerous and real. That's the way they liked it. Here's another one. I know what his, another wife, I know what his shift's been like the minute he walks in the door. After a bad night, he'll head straight for the refrigerator or the liquor cabinet. Then he'll talk my ear off for three hours. The worst part, says this wife of a former controller, is when you hear there's been a crash. 
You eat your heart out until you can find out whether he was the controller in charge. Here's a veteran of 10 years up in the tower. It was like being inside a video game, a new and exciting video game. It was always something different. When I worked the airplanes, swishing them in and out, I'd have problems I had to pose instant solutions for. And they had to work. We used a sixth sense, one that computers will never have. We had to learn to flow with it, to flow with the traffic, as if it were an art form or part of some piece of music. It was one hell of a macho experience. You had to be the best goddamn controller in the facility or well on your way to claiming the title. The Clint Eastwood syndrome was alive and well where we worked. So why is that important? Well, it explains the kind of, um, obviously, deep passion and commitment to the job, but also a, a sense that these were kings of the universe, but also the stakes and the stress and what that was doing to these individual controllers. So what did they want? Well, they wanted $10,000 across the board for controllers and a reduction of the work week from 40 hours to 32 the reduction in the hours was a, an acknowledgement of the control of the stress of the job. Here is Richard Smith, who in 2016 recorded a YouTube video about the strike. He was a controller in the Los Angeles Center, and he described this kind of mindset that started out when the controllers who wanted these improvements in their conditions, the, he described them the mindset going into the strike. I decided, well, if they go on strike, we'll see, but... Uh... Probably I'd go on strike if everybody else does. What they can do, fire us all. (laughs) Uh. The air traffic controllers thought they had leverage because they were the experts. Where are you going to find more controllers, especially if they all stood together? You can't find that many people to go run the controller, you know, these all these air traffic control towers. If you got rid of them or fired them or just replaced them with people who weren't as expert as they were, air travel would snarl. People would be very angry and they'd blame the person who fired the controllers or who replaced them. And, by the way, people would be scared. Who wants to go flying around with anybody in the air traffic control tower? And also, by the way, the leverage they thought they had over the government, over the Reagan administration, was that there might be a crash, and then the Reagan administration would get blamed for not taking care of the controllers who could have forestalled the crash. And Reagan's advisors were worried about that, that a major air disaster would result from pushing the controllers too far or causing a work stoppage or a strike or even this notion of potentially firing them altogether. But when the negotiations started, they went on for seven months. When the, when the negotiations started, while the government, of course, knew while you had this leverage back and forth, it was not a foregone conclusion that they would get fired by any means. Now, what Reagan had going for him was that if you're an air traffic controller, you don't have any other options either. I mean, to the extent that he can't fire all the air traffic controllers because where do you get new ones? The air traffic controller can't exactly go be a private air traffic controller somewhere. I mean, unless they went overseas. One actual air traffic controller went and tried to to move to Saudi Arabia to do air traffic control over there, but they wouldn't let his wife come with him, so he couldn't take the job. Anyway, so if you're an air traffic controller and you lose your job, you got to get a whole new career. So Reagan had on his side, as he negotiated with these PATCO uh, employees that uh, are PATCO union members, that he hoped basically their economic self-interest would kick in. In about June of 1981, PATCO President Robert Poley and the Transportation Secretary Drew Lewis agreed three hours before the June 22nd strike deadline that the PATCO uh, union members had set to a smaller deal, giving the controllers a $4,000 raise for the existing 40-hour work week. The poly endorsed the deal. He was the, he was the president of PATCO. He said it was a reasonable deal. 
if not everything the union wanted, and he referred it back to the members. They would have to take a vote on it, but it looked like a pretty good deal. USA Today wrote at the time, 42-month pact would give the average controller a $4,000 pay increase. Both sides call negotiations tough but fair. The article continues, the article written by Ward Morehouse III, which is just a great name. With the announcement of a tentative settlement of the contract dispute between the federal government and the nation's air traffic controllers came a collective sigh of relief. Okay. Well, a little more on this. Okay. So what Poli said is the biggest change in the, in the 42-month 42, 42 contract uh, was the language of the contract because in this contract that was agreed upon on the 22nd of June – um, said the president of Petco, what was crucial was not just the pay increase, but the recognition by the government that the air traffic controller was unique. Poli, the president of the union, said this agreement is fair and equitable and one which all parties can accept. But then the union voted. And the union members, who we've described as Marlboro men, Clint Eastwood types, rejected the deal three to one. Roundly rejected it. So, back to the bargaining table. So, Drew Lewis, Secretary of Transportation, and the union boss, Poli, resumed their talks. But at this point, they were going nowhere. And here's Reagan writing in his diary, according to H.W. Brand's book, Reagan, The Life. Negotiations are still going on to try and head off tomorrow's illegal strike by the air controllers. I told Drew L., that means Drew Lewis, to tell their union chief I was the best friend his people ever had in the White House, but I would not countenance an illegal strike, nor would I permit negotiations while a strike was in process. We're still miles apart, and there hasn't been much bargaining. At this point, things get quite contentious. Lewis, the transportation secretary, says the demands from the union are nothing short of outrageous. The union, meanwhile, sets August 3rd as the strike deadline. And... And they admit, the union admits in the papers, the outlook is not good. At this point, it's interesting to check in with public opinion, which was not on the side of the controllers. And in fact, the New York Times editorial page wrote uh, an editorial called Bring the Controllers Down to Earth. So in the current construction of our world, the notion that a Republican president would find uh, support from the editorial page of the New York Times in a labor dispute, that might surprise people. People might think the New York Times would take the side of the labor disputers. But in this case, New York Times wrote, A settlement on the union's exorbitant terms would set an inflationary precedent for millions of federal workers. The idea roughly being, you pay these guys more. Why? What's to keep other federal employees from asking for the same thing? So here's the New York Times editorial page writing, If workers making thirty to $50,000 win a big increase because they have the power to disrupt air service, what will the Postal Service say to workers making 15000 What the Times acknowledges but, but didn't acknowledge in making that analogy, if that makes sense, is what they write about, which is the need for the near-perfect performance from controllers. This, the job certainly carries great responsibility, wrote the New York Times, but study after study, and this is the kicker, study after study, has not produced any evidence that it is exceptionally stressful. The Reagan administration is making a more than reasonable offer, the New York Times wrote, about the Republican president. It is hard to see how Mr. Reagan or the taxpayers can afford to go much further. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, The New York Times not on their side, popular opinion not on their side, but the controllers were immovable. And this, no doubt, came from their view that they had this basically ultimate control over the government, which is that what are they going to do, shut down all the planes? Reagan saw this 
showdown as in two ways. One, he saw it as an early test of his view about bureaucracy and government and a symbolic fight over the bureaucracy and trying to tame it and its demands. But he also saw it as a moral situation and case. And here's why. We'll move to the day that the 13,000 walk out and 7,000 flights across the country are canceled. And so the president goes into the Rose Garden, makes a speech on the 3rd of August. And it's a very, it's a great example of short, powerful presidential speech. It's a 400 word speech. It's at the beginning of a press conference and the rest of the press conference is not that notable. But it's a 400 word speech at the top. And here's how the president lays it out. He gives the controllers 48 hours to reverse their strike or he'll fire them. He then thanks the controllers who crossed the picket lines to show up to work. And and he explains the situation, the previous breakdown in negotiations, and that he had offered the union favorable terms. At one point in these negotiations, agreement was reached and signed by both sides, granting a $40 million increase in salaries and benefits. This is twice what other government employees can expect. It was granted in recognition of the difficulties inherent in the work these people perform. Now, however, the union demands are 17 times what had been agreed to, $681 million. This would impose a tax burden on their fellow citizens, which is unacceptable. The president then pointed out that the air traffic controllers had signed a special pledge, and this gets to the moral piece of his argument. And here's what the pledge read. It said, I am not participating in any strike. This is a pledge that an air air traffic controller had to sign. I am not participating in any strike against the government of the United States or any agency thereof. And I will not so participate while an employee of the government of the United States or any agency thereof. In an interview with National Public Radio at the time, Transportation Secretary Drew Lewis said that he talked about the president seeing this as a moral issue. He suggested that the president felt, quote, these people, meaning the controllers, took an oath of office. They haven't lived up to their responsibilities to the American public. Furthermore, the president asked the rhetorical question of himself, if we ever feel that our oath of office isn't going to be something that we keep, how long will we have a free society? So for Reagan, this was a central and a moral question about the relationship between the government and the people who work for it, that this strike for him was, yes, about his position as a new president, but also he saw it in terms of keeping norms that are required for the smooth functioning of a government. And so in his speech in the Rose Garden on August 3rd, he deployed a little bit of folksy uh, anecdote about one of those controllers who'd crossed the picket line and the, the personal compulsion he felt to keep his word. At National Airport, a traffic controller told a news person he had resigned from the union and reported to work because, quote, how can I ask my kids to obey the law if I don't, end quote. This is a great tribute to America. The president then went on to say that he respected the rights of workers in the private sectors to strike. In fact, he had been a president of his own union. And he talked about that he was probably the only president to hold the office who was a lifetime member of the AFL-CIO. And in fact, he led the first strike ever called by the union that he was a member of. But he said we can't compare labor management relations in the private sector with the government because the government cannot close down the assembly line. It has to provide without interruption the the services which are the government's reason for being. So this is interesting also because this is clearly about a size of government message that that Reagan was sending. It's not that he was trying to shrink government. It was that he was wrestling for who controls it. But by talking about the essential reason for government's being, you know, people talk about starving government. And the, the charge against conservatives is that they don't want government to do anything. 
But here you had the president arguing on behalf of the government and its crucial jobs and what it needed to do. And so then the president delivered the final blow in this speech and the ultimatum to the striking air traffic controllers. They are in violation of the law. And if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. The AFL-CIO, at the time that Reagan made this remark on August 3rd, they were hosting their executive meeting in Chicago. And when they heard that the strike had started and that Reagan had issued this ultimatum, they were furious. They thought that Patco couldn't win. And by walking out, they'd put all of labor out on a limb. And there was this public attention to this issue. And so all of labor was being thrown in with the grabby guys at Patco. And they had a personal feeling about Patco, which I'll get to in a minute. But some labor leaders wanted sympathy strikes, but the Airline Pilots Association was against the strike. So it undermined this idea of union solidarity. And the reason this is all important is that Professor McCartan of Georgetown University, who wrote that book Collision Course, says that this moment and the uncertainty of unions more broadly about what Patco was doing and the lack of a unified message from the unions changed the way private corporations looked at the unions in their shops. And here's what he writes. It was not common for employers to deal with strikes by trying to break them. But once Reagan had broken Patco and retained his popularity, many private sector employers took a similarly hard line when in the pri- when private sector workers went on strike. So the lack of unity and the uncertainty within the labor movement that was excavated by this clash on on August 3rd sent a larger labor message. One of the reasons that the labor unions weren't all for what Patco was doing was because the Patco president, Poli, had um, kind of gone his own way in when he had taken over the union and started this, his negotiations with the federal government. And Willis Norland writes in his book, Silent Skies, he writes this. Poli embarked on a campaign to change the work environment in the, in the system dramatically and to obtain major s- salary gains for Patco members. In this process, he failed to elicit or obtain support from other parts of the labor movement. Precisely why he went it alone is not known, but it seems to have stemmed from his feeling that the union was in a strategic position that was strong enough to obtain whatever goals it sought. Examination of the role of air traffic controllers in the aviation industry suggested that Pulley's assessment of their strength was based on reality. One would be hard-pressed to find another group of public employees that were as highly skilled and indispensable as were the air traffic controllers. However, what Pulley and the Patco failed to recognize and understand was the changed political climate in the nation. Americans elected Ronald Reagan on a platform for change. This change process involved downsizing government, returning governmental power to the states, deregulating the industry, and initiating a dramatic change in economic policies to reshape the economic and social systems. Americans apparently found in the new president the kinds of ideas and policies that coincided with this mandate. However, what Poli and the Patco did not see was that the goals of the union were in large part inconsistent with the new Reagan agenda. Given that, here is the Patco, here's a Patco spokesman for one of the local chapters, Elliot Simmons, reflecting on this episode 30 years later. And this basically complete misreading of the politics of the moment. This is an, in an interview with something called Real Talk News. And this is why Patco thought they didn't need their relationship with other unions. Patco at the time, myself included, were so arrogant that we didn't think we needed to help. So there was really not much pre-planning that went on. 
we felt we were going to shut the air traffic system down. We didn't think they could proceed without us. And when it finally happened and all of a sudden it was working, uh, we were really caught short. Simmons continues later in the interview. The, the other real key part that, that we didn't understand back then was the force of public opinion back then. And, and again, we thought that we could shut things down and public opinion didn't matter. So we were so wrong. It was a political lesson uh, that we were learning the hard way. The threat didn't get the controllers to stop striking and the administration did not buckle. About a quarter of the PATCO members defied the strike call and reported to work in early August. These controllers, along with their supervisors, kept about half the country's flights in the air. Five days into the strike, the Federal Aviation Administration and the airlines had managed to get about three-quarters of the planes back up in the air. So it was over. The administration would no longer negotiate with the workers. They were fired. The 48 hours expired. They did not come back to the table. They did not accept the previous agreement. Basically, the administration called their bluff and then refused to negotiate after 48 hours. So the proud Marlboro man of the Air Traffic Controllers Union was in complete defeat. There is one argument just off to the side a little bit that is beyond the scope of our presidential podcast that is important, though. It's an argument about the long-term cost of the firing, and it's not simply that the firing was too severe and therefore, and or that it sent signals into the private union market that led to the fact that union membership, uh, which was at about 20% in the 80s, um, in 1983 it was 20%, today it's about 11%. A lot of people think that the death of the union's kind of started or was hastened by this decision by Reagan. So those are certainly big long-term uh, effects that, that resulted from this. But another long-term argument here that we'll just touch on briefly, but that's important, is that the government got rid of a class of people who knew about and advocated for a replacement of the antiquated air traffic controller system. So why is that important? Well, this was this frame of viewing this is that this is an attack against expertise, an attack against people in the system who know what it needs. In this view of things, Reagan took the risk of a crash, and that's a huge deal here, that there might have been a crash after he fired all these workers, and then what would have happened? Nevertheless, he took the risk uh, that there might be a crash and that he would get blamed on it, in part because he thought of these controllers as replaceable. They were not irreplaceable experts. Uh, and I obviously don't know, don't know enough about the FAA history or the flight system history to evaluate this claim, but... The idea here is that by getting rid of the experts, you got rid of the people who knew exactly what the deficiencies were in the existing system. And so when you think of jobs as just simply the doing of the job, then people are more interchangeable. But when you think about one of the central complaints of the air traffic controllers in this negotiation was that the equipment they were using was so antiquated that they were being forced to use this old, these old tools to do a job that was increasingly complicated and that that was what was creating the stress in the job and that that's what they wanted fixed. And so the argument is that by firing them all, those things never got fixed. Now, again, I don't know the history of the FAA and the subsequent reforms that were made and the systems that were changed. There is an argument that essentially Reagan ended up spending money on fixing the air traffic control problem in a way that was larger than the, than the pay increase that PATCO employees were asking for in the original deal. But that because he couldn't be seen as to be weak and because he was sending a message here, he wasn't going to he wasn't going to accept the terms of the of the more generous deal. But I guess but the point here is that this firing had long-term consequences that went well beyond 
in terms of air traffic safety and the systems of of repair and having people around who knew what those systems should be and how they should be improved, that that was another casualty of this firing. So in evaluating this case, we look at Reagan's move, the signal he was trying to send, the speech he gave in the Rose Garden, his position, the way in which he was able to capture the public mood uh, such that the New York Times editorial page ended up being on his side. And we evaluate the short-term problems he avoided. He avoided ticking off the public. He avoided getting blamed for any accident. And he ultimately got the upper hand over the air traffic controllers. But when we look at presidential decisions, they also have this extremely long life that exists well outside the closed period of the conflict and even the closed period of a presidency itself. And so when we look at the current presidency or future presidencies, there is neglect or decisions that we think have kind of run their course, but that because the president tends to be a short-termerism job, there's no mechanism for thinking about things that might happen in 20 years because what's the political benefit of that? You'll be out of office. This is an instance in which part of the story is a, is about the system that was never changed because there were no longer 12,000 controllers there who knew why and how the system had to be changed. Reagan took no victory lap after this, this success. Luke Hannon, the Reagan biographer, though, wrote about the strike in his book, Reagan, Role of a Lifetime, and the way in which it was, it was um, evaluated by both the president and, um, and Republican lawmakers and uh, other Republicans in the system. It struck me as singular, said Donald Rumsfeld, who was the chief of staff under Ford, and not a fan of Reagan's. Remember, Reagan ran against Ford uh, in 1976. It struck me as singular. You had a president who was new to the office and, and not taken seriously by a lot of people. It showed a decisiveness and an ease with his instincts. And by contrast with his predecessor, it staked out a leadership position that was anti-inflationary. Reagan did not fully realize the importance of the decision at the time, writes Cannon, but would later say his action in the strike was, quote, an important juncture for our new administration. I think it convinced people who might have thought otherwise that I meant what I said. Before we go, I want to take a second to tell you about another great Slate podcast, the X GabFest. It's a bi-weekly podcast about feminism, gender, sexuality, health, politics, Beyonce, and other interest uh, items of interest to women. Maybe not just women, but that's the way they're talking about it. It's hosted by Invisibilia co-host Hannah Rosen, New York Magazine's Noreen Malone, and managing producer of Slate podcast June Thomas. Every other Thursday, you can get a helping of this Double X Gab Fest. Check it out at slate.com slash XX. Download and subscribe to the Double X Gab Fest wherever you find podcasts in your grocer's freezer. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It also helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald. He's one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, which is a new Washington Post history section. And thanks, uh, thanks very much to Dory Valerio at CBS Radio, who hooked me up with this studio in which I'm recording this up in New York while I'm here for the week. Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply Network. You can explore the entire roster of podcasts at www.panoply.fm and explore them you should. We'll be with you in a couple of weeks. Until then, thanks for being out there. <laughs>